Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing this week's guest, I want to announce our upcoming book club, Reading the Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Dan Klein and I are going to do a series of podcasts on the book, and you can read along and listen and share your reactions, comments, and questions. The first episode of the book club will be our regular Monday release next week, April 6th. Dan and I will discuss the significance and key insights of the book using some key passages as an introduction. After that, we'll read through the book, and subsequent podcasts will be released midweek as a bonus, in addition to our regular schedule. If you're interested, listen in, whether you're reading along or not. We've created a page for the book club, www.econtalk.org slash bookclub.html. And you can also get there by going to the EconTalk homepage, and up in the left-hand corner, you'll see a link to the EconTalk book club page. On the book club page, you'll find a link to the entire book that you can read online at no charge. It's part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, the website that EconTalk is part of. You'll also find additional readings and links to our podcasts as we post them. If you want to get a head start on your reading, our second podcast on the book will be on part one and will be released around April 15th. Each podcast will have its own page where you can comment and react as it's released. These comments will serve as a discussion board that Dan and I will drop into from time to time to respond to your reactions. It's a work in progress. I'm not sure the exact schedule yet of readings down the road, but we'll try to keep you posted at that book club page and in the podcasts themselves. I'm sure I'll learn a lot from reading The Theory of Moral Sentiments with Dan Klein as my guide, and hope you will too. Now on to this week's guest. It's March 11th, 2009, and my guest today is Brink Lindsay of the Cato Institute and the author of The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed America's Politics and Culture. Brink, welcome to EconTalk. Russ, glad to be here. Your book, The Age of Abundance, is a sweeping cultural, economic, and political history of the 20th century. I want to talk first about the economic part of it, the prosperity part. Despite the Great Depression and two world wars, the 20th century was an incredible success in terms of material well-being for America. And I'd like you to summarize a little bit of that success because I think uh, it's often underappreciated and not well understood. Yes, over the course of the 20th century, uh, per capita income uh, multiplied something like four times. Uh, Life expectancy was... I can't remember exactly, but around 40 years, low 40s in 1900. Uh, it was up uh, well into the 70s uh, by the end of the uh, century. Much of that had to do with uh, precipitous declines in childhood uh, mortality uh, with the conquest of various uh, uh, epidemic diseases. Uh, enormous increases in standard of living, uh, the suburbanization of America so that uh, single-family homes became uh, the norm for many people. Of course, 
one technological marvel after another that transformed our lives, uh, automobiles and TVs uh, being prominent among them, amongst them. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the whole thing uh, really got rolling uh, in the latter decades of the 19th century uh, with uh, what we call our Industrial Revolution, what uh, economic historians sometimes call the Second Industrial Revolution. Uh, but the the advent of mass production and uh, mass distribution, uh, which really got rolling in the uh, 1870s, 1880s, and uh, which was then uh, just a, uh, a, a precipitated a chain reaction of economic dynamism that then in turn led to cultural dynamism. Um, my uh, my book focuses on uh, the post World War II period, and uh, and I would uh, I would argue that that it was in the in the post war boom in the 1950s uh, that uh, that America represented something fundamentally new under the sun. Of course, it had been building incrementally all along, uh, but uh, but by the 50s, you could say that this was a country where uh, the vast majority of people. Uh, were well insulated from uh, from the uh, uh, from the <clears throat> edge of subsistence where most human beings had lived for all of history. So most people lived with a fair degree of uh, of material comfort. In fact, uh, an extravagant degree of material comfort by historical standards, and a, and and only a minority of people were considered in poverty. Uh, this is uh, this is something that is. Is without precedent. Uh, it's also it was also a situation where not only were they insulated from want, but they were insulated from nature. Uh, America had always been a prosperous country by uh, world standards, uh, but it was one where most people still uh, made their living uh, as farmers, directly exposed to the vagaries of nature uh, for uh, their well-being. Uh, whereas by the 1950s, uh, most people uh, uh, lived in cities. Uh, began working in offices, uh, lived in, in basically a human-created world, a world of human institutions and human inventions, uh, and uh, and didn't directly face n- nature except uh, for recreation. Uh, again, a, a fundamental change in the human condition. Yeah, I think the book, while it focuses on the last half of the 20th century, I think it's longer perspective. Uh, you do a really superb job in chronicling the changes in material uh, access to material stuff for the average person. And uh, we've talked on this show before about how little understood that transformation is. So I I don't want to – I don't want to understate it, the importance of that. But I do think – and I recommend people to to read the opening part of the book – just for that alone, it's it's worthwhile to read the the scope and uh, breadth of what has changed in our lives for the average person in the last hundred years. But as you point out, uh, you're more interested, I think, in in most of the book in the cultural consequences of that prosperity, which is interesting in and of itself because I think most people treat culture as sort of a uh, it's an emergent Hayekian phenomenon, surely. But most, I think, folks don't think much about where it comes from or what forces work on it. And I think one of your contributions is to focus on that aspect of prosperity. Yeah, I, I spend a good time setting up the 
the immensity of this economic transformation because uh, I, want, I want people to get it. Uh, you're right. We all take it for granted. It's like fish in the water. That's how we that's how we treat material abundance. We just uh, it's 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 all around us. Uh, um, and so we just treat it as natural. It's fundamentally not natural at all. It's incredibly unnatural. It's incredibly artificial. It's incredibly novel. Uh, so uh, uh, it's uh, and once you get that in your head, once you sort of have your historical imagination awakened to the point where you can see that we live in a situation that is just dramatically, radically different from the way most human beings have lived for the hundred thousand years plus of human existence, uh, and for the ten thousand years uh, of of uh, <clears throat> civilized existence. Uh, but one, one, then, 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 then you think, you know, that well, of course, there must be. Uh, fundamental and important cultural changes that go along with this. You can't change your entire way of life in this dramatically radical way and not have uh, not have your way of life and your beliefs and your values and your attitudes change as well. But one counterpoint, and I and I think you allude to it in passing, uh, but reject its importance. One counterpoint is is the economist's argument that there's always scarcity. You never have enough of anything, and if I think Thomas Sowell's pointed this out very well. That when you you know you look at the newspaper, they're always bemoaning the fact that people are don't have enough of what they want. There's always stress and hardship, uh, no matter how high the average rises. But your claim is that that is uh, missing the bigger picture. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think of course, in the economic perspective, scarcity is ineradicable. Uh, people always want more. Uh, there's always trade-offs at the margins. So in that sense, there's always scarcity. But in a sociological sense, uh, what I refer to as scarcity is is being close to that margin of subsistence uh, and, uh, and and having it stare you in the face, uh, whereas that's just not the case anymore. Uh, right now, we're talking about uh, uh, the, this economic downturn uh, in apocalyptic terms, and, and, and understandably so. It's a, it's a severe contraction. Uh, and yet, uh, the uh, you know, our economy has shrank two percent last year, right. uh, and and so that means it's we're still just uh, you know as rich as we were the year before, right? Uh, right? And and which means that we're amongst the very richest people in all of history, and we and the trade-offs we're facing of cutting back on a vacation or not buying a new car this year or uh, not putting an addition on the house; these are just completely different from going without food. Yeah, I, I'm still one of the few Americans with a 27-inch television, and life is, you know, it's tough. But I think <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. We you're need to, by. yeah, we need to put it in person. And I don't have cable, um, but that's for really um, non-material reasons. That's to protect my children and myself from watching sports 27 hours a day. Uh, but I think it, it's it cannot be understated. Obviously, people adjust their expectations to what they're used to. But this type of the current situation, the stress and hardship of the current situation, is trivial compared to 1933. We we hope it wasn't get anything close to that. But at the current level, they shouldn't be compared. No, and the and the you know the reason we're so successful and so rich and uh, and so productive is that uh, we immediately equilibrate to the new situation and then want more. Right? We want things to be even better, uh, yeah. and we take for granted where we are, and we want things to be better. And that that attitude is, I think, fantastic. If we were if we were as satisfied with our lot as uh, 
as you might want us to be, then, then people wouldn't be quite as agitating to uh, to keep uh, inventing better mousetraps and keep going. So, uh, standing but, that lifespan. But, but the but the downside of that uh, of that uh, sort of insatiability uh, is that people don't fully appreciate how how good they've got it. So let's turn to the cultural issues. Uh, you argue that that prosperity in the post-war era, uh, the fifties, and then coming into the sixties and seventies created two large cultural movements on both the left and the right. So talk about what what those are where, and how they respond by that prosperity. Yeah, I think, I think fundamentally, uh, and of course, uh, uh, I think what I do in the book is demonstrate how economic changes produce cultural changes. Uh, I don't think the causation runs only in that direction. I think causation runs every which way. Uh, but, but it's important to see how economic changes do produce cultural changes, and cultural changes in turn produce economic changes. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. The main change here is, is, and to boil it down to one thesis, uh, is that I, I think that this abundance, material prosperity, the, the end of scarcity in the sense I use it, uh, <clears throat> pushes us towards cultural individualism. Uh, when people are poor, uh, they don't have a lot of choices. Uh, they don't have a lot of stuff. They don't have a lot of choice about what to consume. Uh, they don't have a lot of choice about where to live.
to do your own thing in the, uh, in the uh, expression of the 60s. Um, so we saw uh, in, uh, in uh, race relations the spontaneous uh, uprising of African Americans in the civil rights movement to taking direct action That alone would have been an extraordinary cultural change uh, to happen over such a short period, but of course it wasn't the only one. <laughs> no, uh, no, and and then you have, of course, the the uh, the, the feminist revolution uh, of the sixties and seventies, and the dramatic expansion of the number of jobs that were open to women, and a complete overhaul of the whole idea of the traditional sexual division of labor uh, and the proper relations between men and women. Um, you had uh, a new consciousness of uh, of the uh, importance of the natural environment and and a, a more interest in quality of life. Uh, how those interests were then uh, uh, put into practice in public policy is another question. But the the values I think are are obviously related to affluence. Uh, you had. we see 
see them climbing Maslow's pyramid uh, and uh, and start really pursuing self actualization and self realization in a in a more committed and 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 sort of wide ranging and adventurous way than ever before. I don't I don't think it's any coincidence uh, that 1964. Uh, the year the first baby boomers uh, turned 18 was also the year of the first riots at Berkeley and the beginnings of what we call the 60s. And yet that um, cultural, those set of cultural forces, which you've mentioned so far, which would generally be identified with the left, yes. uh, were not the only forces going on. There were no. also a counter set of counter forces. So talk, talk about those. Yeah, well, the... The thing is, and the great irony is, uh, that the people who were on the vanguard and the forefront of all of these new, uh, uh, exploring these new possibilities and new values made possible by mass affluence, tended to be on the left and, and therefore tended to be extremely hostile to the institutions of capitalism and middle-class bourgeois morality that had created the affluence that made their uh, new adventurousness possible. Uh, and so they were sort of fundamentally at war with themselves, or rather, they were attacking the institutional foundations of of what they were all about. Uh, and that, I think, helped to provoke a, a mirror image phenomenon. So you had the, this new left uh, arising during uh, the 60s. Uh, less attention was paid to it at the time, uh, but much more so uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. But a, a new right emerged at the same time. Uh, and that was one where... Uh, where uh, people were forthrightly defending capitalism and defending traditional uh, middle-class morality. (laughs) But they were defending uh, those things as as traditions that were part of a larger set of traditions, all of which they were attached to. Uh, And so, uh, so here you have the mirror image problem. People... uh, Staunchly defending capitalism, and yet, uh, the, because they are generally traditionalists, people who are uh, at, at, at least unsettled by, and at uh, worst, utterly hostile to all the cultural dynamism that's being unleashed by capitalism. So, on the one hand, you've got people uh, condemning capitalism, yet gobbling up its fruits. That's the people on the left, uh, and then you've got uh, people defending capitalism, yet proclaiming its fruits are toxic, and that's. The, the people on the right, both sides have at their core, I think, a, a kind of uh, or, or came both the the new left and the new right uh, had at their core what I, I think have to be described as spiritual movements. Obviously, in the case of the right, uh, the emergence of the religious right, uh, the utterly unexpected uh, uh, and yet uh, credibly influential emergence of uh, of theologically and uh, socially conservative evangelical Protestantism. Uh, and then on the left, a, a kind of spiritual uh, uh, movement that was the counterculture. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, the both, and both of those kind of spiritual convulsions during the 60s, one, everyone was paying attention to the hippies. Uh, no one was paying attention to, uh, to the evangelicals during the 60s. But uh, but they proceeded in parallel, and they they gave uh, <clears throat> impetus to these larger political movements of uh, of left and right, as we have known them until the present day. Uh, one side uh, wedded the right, wedded to economic uh, dynamism, but but uh, uh, hostile to cultural dynamism. Uh, the left, vice versa. And some would argue, I 
you, you also mentioned that it's exaggerated, but some would argue that the so-called red state, blue state divide is is one way of describing that. Yeah, tension. no, that, I mean that's 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 the most recent way of thinking about these things, and and so you you tend to that and, and yes, that's the uh, uh, that's the continuation, I think, of ideological categories and ways of of thinking about things that I think really grew out of the experience of the '60s and. And uh, and and so you have uh, the uh, and of course you know not everybody in the red states are are conservative and not everybody in the blue states are liberal but not even uh, close. but <clears throat> still uh, that you can talk about red Americans and blue Americans uh, wherever they may be located They're, they tend to be geographically concentrated um, but uh, the uh, the red Americans uh, uh, tend to think uh, tend to Fight the fact that the '60s happened, and that that uh, that uh, irreversible changes uh, that took place then they they wish were reversible, uh, and they tend to uh, to be sympathetic to accounts of of moral and cultural decline. Uh, <clears throat> meanwhile, on the uh, left, uh, you have people who uh, are averse to the great continuing economic dynamism that's occurred since the 60s and that we can summarize by the Reagan revolution of the 80s. They wish the 80s had never happened uh, and uh, and that the hopefully irreversible, they're trying to reverse them now, the hopefully irreversible changes of that era could be reversed. And they tend to think in terms of economic decline. So even during this long boom, uh, which has sadly come to an end, uh, they were always complaining about, uh, about how it really wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Uh, and uh, and in particular, focusing on things like uh, inequality and uh, and seizing upon uh, happiness literature uh, and, uh, to say that we're not really happy even though we're rich here. So always looking at the downside of economic uh, dynamism. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a half empty, half full story, depend, and it's just a different, I guess, different half of the glass right. uh, is, is the, where the empty or the full part is. Yep. Uh, I, we're going to come back and talk about that in the last part of this conversation, but I want to ask you a question about um, cultural and economic freedom that I don't think you talked about in the book. There, <clears throat> There is a tendency among those of us who are big fans of economic dynamism, which I am and I know you are, um, we have a half-empty, half-full problem as well. Uh, we, we like – we tend to talk about how well the economy has been doing. Yes. But at the same time, we bemoan the incursions of government, the size of government overall. You know, even though the the, uh, the cultural left is critical of of economic uh, change and has nostalgia for the past, we often argue that we really haven't embraced in the eighties, nineties, or now the real the free market ideals, and yeah. that it's just rhetorical that people paint the current era as some sort of laissez-faire free market era, right? When I interviewed Milton Friedman for Econ Talk, he talked with despair of how few of his ideas had actually been implemented. I was thrilled that any of them had been and that and that many of them were on the table, whereas in the 60s they were totally uh, taboo. At least we'd made some progress, but his attitude was, well, it's really very little progress given the current size of government, the size of taxation, and the regulatory structure, even though there's been some deregulation. Having said that, though, let me let me take the half full view of economic progress and freedom, and get your reaction, which is that maybe in parallel to the personal freedom you talked about, and 
and that would be relative to identity, uh, sexual ro- sex roles, um, sexuality, music, etc. You could argue that there is a great deal more economic freedom today than there was in 1950. True, we still have lots of regulations in the workplace. We've added a bunch of different kinds, environmental, discrimination, et cetera. And yet the opportunity to be an entrepreneur, to be self-employed, has probably never been greater in any time than in any other time of human history. And I guess that's my half full part of that story. Do you think I'm right? Yeah, I, w- I do. Uh, I would answer that in a couple of parts. First, uh, I'm in favor of economic freedom because I'm in favor of freedom. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, and in that larger picture, uh, I think I think our era stacks up very nicely compared to any era in, in, in American history or human history. I think libertarians. <clears throat> are vulnerable to kind of golden age thinking uh, that the world was uh, darn near perfect uh, uh, at the signing of the uh, of the constitution and it's been yeah. all it's been all downhill yeah. ever since. Thomas Jefferson was the ideal and after that it's just it's all uh, right. just a bunch of politicians. Right. And yet uh, Thomas Jefferson owned human beings and raped them. Correct. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so and he wasn't a small government president. And, and, <laughs> and so it's, uh, I mean, so there were, you know, millions of people who were in the, you know, the most complete privation of fr- freedom there is uh, in chattel slavery. Uh, women uh, had no legal identity after marriage, couldn't sign contracts on land, uh, uh, had, were fundamentally uh, you know, subjects of their husbands, uh, couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't complain against their husbands for rape until the 60s or 70s. Has, has changed that. So, uh, so on the policy front, I, I think there has been, uh, and I, I talk about this some in the book. There has been this wholesale economic deregulation uh, that occurred in the '70s and '80s, and uh, and that uh, most of which, you know, isn't isn't being touched. Uh, nobody wants to go back. 
back to the AT&T monopoly or uh, or the old uh, uh, regulated airfares or oil and price gas you know uh, oil and gas price controls or all the <clears throat> all the other uh, uh, you know, trucking regulation all, all of these things that were uh, the way things were uh, back in the old days back in the in the 50s and 60s um, so I think. I think our economy is more, the, the policies are more conducive to competition and entrepreneurship uh, than they were a generation ago, by far. Uh, government is bigger than ever, uh, and, and part of that, I'm afraid, is, uh, is a kind of perverse testament to our success in getting the economic policies right, uh, that, uh, that by unshackling our economy from all of this uh, kind of cartelistic, uh, Economic regulation. Uh, we've allowed our economy to become so productive that it, that we have been able to afford a big deadweight loss of of wasteful government uh, and still keep chugging along. Uh, when uh, in the seventies we couldn't, we weren't chugging along anymore. The whole system uh, was breaking down in in the pain of stagflation, and that precipitated this wave of economic deregulation. And yet, since then, we've had this huge boom. And so, it's it's one of the reasons. We've had government grow so big is because uh, it hasn't felt like uh, uh, it, it's felt like we could afford it. Uh, of course, we might have done better, even uh, better without this deadweight burden. But the fact is, things were getting better and better even with it, and that's a testament to the productive power of of uh, the, the relatively uh, liberalized marketplace. And investors and entrepreneurs and Managers find ways around some of that. They find ways to minimize the price of it, the cost of it, whether it's environmental regulation or labor force regulation. Um, we're, we're, we're such a dynamic economy. And as you point out many times in the book, the division of labor that's been unleashed by our prosperity then reinforces it and feeds on it. So you can have a whole industry coping with regulation, any new, you know, yes. the whole. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, which is, I think, a, a disastrous mistake. Well, it was, it's not as costly as it would normally be because it gener- it quickly creates an industry. It's a wasteful industry, yes. but it's a, an industry that complies with the regulation right. at a minimal cost. Right. It's amazing. So, you know, uh, people talk about the difference between uh, negative liberty and positive liberty, and this goes to, I think, your, the point you were making in your question. Uh, negative liberty is, is freedom from, in particular, freedom from government, and positive liberty is freedom to, and particularly just freedom, you know, the, the effective power to do what you want. Uh, and libertarians focus rightly uh, on negative liberty, negative freedom. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's the focus of their concern. Uh, but but why do we care about that? We care about it because uh, uh, one of the major reasons we care about it is because negative liberty is so conducive to positive liberty uh, that uh, that we think that limited government and free markets produces uh, prosperity and human flourishing. Uh, and uh, we're right. Uh, and. Uh, and so uh, that's that's the ultimate ball game is how much positive liberty we have. Uh, and today, I think it's virtually inarguable that people have more choices, uh, more options, more alternatives than they ever have ever. Uh, and so, in that bottom line sense, we're freer than ever before. And I, I think it's important to mention, as you do many times, and you've alluded to here, it's not just about 
different kinds of dental floss, which we do have. We have unbelievable choice in dental floss. It's amazing that there's more than five kinds. You can get mint. You can get waxed. You can get Gore-Tex. You can get flavored of different other kinds, short, long, fat, thin, and you can have any record, any song. It's an amazing access to some wonderful things. But our choices, I think the choices we often forget about are those cultural and identity choices uh, for, for people who are exploring life and, and who they are. And I think that's uh, just such an important aspect of, of prosperity and freedom. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I, one of the things I, I talk about in the book is coming out of this, coming sort of coming out of the 60s and 70s is, uh, and, 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 and then coming out of the economic sort of renaissance of the 80s, uh, this wild proliferation of subcultures and new cultural identities. And, and certainly the Internet and greater communication has facilitated that. But but once upon a time, like when we were kids, uh, if uh, you know, there was there was maybe one or two ways to be cool when you were in high school. There was you know one in group. Now there's just this wild profusion of different little affinity groups, and there's a whole bunch of different ways to fit in. If you had oddball, non-mainstream tastes when you were a kid growing up in 50 small town America, you're just out of luck, right? There, there's nobody to share it with. You feel like a loner. You feel like a weirdo. Uh, you feel isolated. Uh, these days, uh, you can uh, you know hook up through the internet and find fellow enthusiasts for whatever strange uh, or uh, you know uh, thing that anybody could possibly be into, and so you feel connected to other people, and you feel uh, like your interests are validated and real and important, and and you can you know achieve self-realization because the opportunities are there to uh, to have. A custom-made life, one that fits exactly the dimensions of your needs, priorities, and values. So you're not sympathetic to this argument that the Internet is a bunch of strange people bowling alone, surfing alone, sitting in their cubicle, uh, unconnected to human beings, and living a virtual digital life that's a pale imitation of the real thing. Yeah, I don't buy that. I mean – I think uh, a couple of things. There's, I can't remember who made up this uh, the ninety percent rule, but basically the rule is ninety percent of everything is crap. And so you know the we have this amazing proliferation of stuff these days and options, and a lot of it's vulgar and base and stupid and, tri- and trivial and shallow and okay uh, and seductive and, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and and you know in moderation, doing vulgar, shallow, superficial things is fine. It's fun. Uh, so. You know, it's uh, it's great to have a couple of glasses of wine with dinner. It's terrible to be a wino. It's uh, great to be able to watch things, you know, on television and uh, to see uh, world events live and to see great, you know, great or entertaining programs. It's terrible to be a couch potato. So uh, you have all of these options, and and there's all kinds of ways to uh, to exercise them poorly. Uh, and so uh, we just have more of everything now. We have more trash, uh, and we have more. Uh, superlative greatness than ever before. So the opportunities to to live, you know, a, a phenomenally well lived life have never been more uh, within our grasp. Whether everybody, uh, you know, <clears throat> uses their freedom wisely is a different matter. And but that's 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 a, a fundamental faith that libertarians have uh, is that if you give people freedom, uh, they're going to do okay. Uh, that the the very predictable ways in which people will misuse their freedom are 
more than compensated for by the unpredictable miracles that occur when people are free to do their own thing and be creative. Yeah, I'd, I'd put it differently. I'd much prefer a world where people abuse the internet, television, and alcohol than a world where um, centralized power keeps them from doing X, Y, or Z, whatever yeah. it whatever it happens yeah. to be. No, I'll, I'll take the uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take the the mix of the messy mix of freedom to the kind of stale conformity of top down control any day of the week. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's the ultimate test of adulthood is uh, learning to deal with that in moderation. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. They'd rather see uh, the government keep things from their kids, and I'd rather see parents do it. And that's uh, that's something I, I talk about in the book, that, that, that I think we did go down a learning curve uh, culturally uh, after the 60s. We had all these uh, traditional uh, rules breaking down and all these new choices opening up. And at first, uh, social conservatives had what looked like a very good case that the world was just going to hell, uh, that, that this new cultural freedom was just too much, and uh, people were misusing it so badly uh, that, that it was just a disaster. So we had crime rates soaring, divorce rates soaring, welfare dependency soaring, uh, single parenthood soaring, abortions soaring, all of these sort of indicators of social breakdown were just going through the roof from the mid-60s, uh, uh, certainly through the 70s, and, and, and many uh, uh, of these indicators through the 80s. But then, uh, starting in the 1990s, uh, we saw just about every one of these things start going in the other direction. And for reasons people really can't, for most of these things, people don't have a very good idea of, here's the one thing that happened that changed everything. Uh, but uh, but I, I think what we saw uh, was people learning how to deal with their freedom. And, and so new, new kinds of, of, uh, of moral uh, sensibilities and rules started kicking in that were more tolerant, less dogmatic, less absolutist, less grounded in uh, 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 sort of traditional uh, belief structures than before. Uh, but they kicked in because, uh, uh, because people could tell that they worked and they were needed, that you needed, that you, that, to have effective freedom, uh, you have to be able to make commitments. Uh, that's a, that's one of the great exercises of freedom is to commit yourself, which means then living within limits, but living within chosen limits. And so we started seeing that some of those chosen limits, like uh, a work ethic and like being uh, committed to your family, uh, were indeed uh, not uh, part of the oppressive system, like uh, the kind of uh, countercultural radicals of the 60s said, uh, but were indeed constituent elements of a well-lived life. And so we saw them kind of coming back into vogue. Uh, and, uh, and, and as a result, uh, I think what we're living in culturally now is a world where we're much freer uh, than we were before, but uh, we're getting increasingly better at living with that freedom and, and avoiding the, mis- the mistakes and pitfalls that that freedom brings with it. When you argue... Just to finish up this this section of our of our conversation, when you argue that that the world's becoming more libertarian, how, how much of that do you feel is 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 the person the social types of libertarian freedom versus other, say, economic freedom? Yeah, you know, much more so. Uh, it's it's much more that I think as uh, as your uh, Mason colleague Brian Kaplan has uh, has depressingly documented. Uh, most Americans are economically illiterate. Uh, they they don't understand fundamental concepts of economics, and so therefore they are they are prone to fundamental prone to to 
economic de- demagoguery. Also, everybody likes free ice cream. Uh, and so uh, if you promise people free stuff and there's a disconnect between the, the government spending and the taxation that ultimately has to pay for it, uh, then people will go for it. And so uh, that kind of big government in terms of spending is, is frequently popular, and uh, we're seeing some of that uh, right now. Uh, so uh, I, I think there's just, you know, it's, it would just be foolish to try to assert uh, that uh, that most Americans are, uh, are any kind of rigorous libertarians. Uh, I think Americans relative to most people in the world, and relative to Europeans in particular, uh, do have a big, fat libertarian streak. Uh, they do believe uh, more than uh, Europeans by a fair sight uh, that individuals ought to be responsible for uh, their own, making their own way in life, and that if they failed, then they probably did something wrong. Uh, sometimes that belief is unfair, uh, but it's a, it's a very productive and useful belief to have, and Americans uh, have it quite strongly. Uh, and going along with that, uh, Americans have all along uh, had uh, a greater aversion to high taxes and to uh, bossy government uh, than similarly affluent people in other nations. So uh, we do have that kind of libertarian streak. But on the cultural side, it's just clear uh, that uh, that when it comes to uh, race, the role of women in society, the proper scope of cultural uh, expression, um, the role of religion in public life, uh, general attitudes about uh, kind of religion uh, uh, across the board, uh, conceptions of what it means to be an American, that is a much more expansive idea of American cultural identity than the old WASP version that used to be kind of the exclusive version. Uh, uh, In all of these ways, Americans have become uh, much more socially liberal, which is to say uh, culturally libertarian. And freer. Yes. Um, well, let's shift gears because I want to. I want to talk about an essay you wrote that is related to some of these topics called Nostalgia Nomics, and we'll put a link up to it uh, on this podcast site. Um, you wrote this essay in response to this nostalgia for the egalitarian 1950s. Uh, there's an argument out there. I associate it mostly with Paul Krugman, but others have yes. articulated it, that, as you mentioned earlier, in the 80s, we got more selfish and we allowed people to exploit the system and to get rich at the expense of others. And the 50s, that was a different time. There was a different cultural ethos about about how much money a person should be making. Uh, there were so-called different rules. I, I find it absurd, but the argument is that in the 1980s, Reagan uh, killed the air traffic controller strike, and that was the end of unions, right. which is an absurd argument. But, but unions, because they've been declining since 1950, but the argument is, is that without unions, somehow the, the average worker doesn't have a voice and has been exploited. That's why the middle class is dying, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So Talk. What is your response to that? Yeah, I, I, I can uh, just to segue from Age of Abundance to Nostalgianomics. Uh, I conclude the uh, the book uh, with the 
assessment that our politics today, our politics of the sort of post-60s left and post-60s right, is in a reactionary rut. Uh, and, uh, and you can tell it's in a reactionary rut because both sides are pining for the past and both sides are kind of nostalgic for the 1950s. Uh, the only difference is uh, the right wants to live there and go home there and the, the left wants to work there. Uh, and so the right has this idyllic uh, uh, sort of attachment to... Uh, Ozzie and Harriet, and uh, and, and the parent left, families, right? And the, going to and church the, every week, and uh, and the left has this idyllic attachment to uh, the old big business, big government, big labor triumvirate, and the the kind of uh, the very uh, visible strong hand of government controlling things, which went along with great prosperity at the time, no doubt about it, uh, and. Uh, and with uh, a situation in which incomes were converging. Uh, that is, uh, everybody was getting richer and getting richer at a nice clip, uh, but uh, people at the bottom were getting richer faster than people at the top. Uh, whereas uh, after the uh, the pain and suffering of the 70s, when growth started kicking up again, the trends looked different. Uh, then uh, everybody continued to get richer, uh, but uh, people at the top uh, were getting richer fastest of all, and some people at the bottom or in the middle were barely trudging along, and some people actually uh, had downward mobility as well. But it, so we we have we have definitely the, the left is correct that there has been a change in in, in economic and in, in income trends that we we've gone from an era of of income convergence to one of income divergence, um, and as as you know. Economic egalitarians that pains them. Uh, so I, uh, in this paper, uh, uh, <clears throat> I look at well, what's causing this divergence? Uh, and the traditional or the the, the prevailing economic economists' explanations uh, of, uh, of of these new trends have been about structural changes in the economy, uh, especially uh, the uh, technological. Revolution, the information technology revolution, and what uh, what economists call skill biased technological change. Uh, that all of these technological changes have added up to greater relative demand for highly skilled workers, uh, which means that their pay gets boosted relative to less skilled workers uh, because of this state of affairs. Uh, and that's without a doubt that's going on. Uh, what Krugman and others, uh, and, and Krugman really hasn't done any scholarship on this. He's just uh, popularizing scholarship done by others, and, and, and in particular, uh, Frank Levy and Peter Temin at MIT. Um, he's saying, well, that, that just can't, that isn't all of it. I think he's right, it isn't all of it. And he okay. said, you've got to look also at changes in uh, any economic policies and changes in social norms. Uh, and that certainly makes sense. We've had uh, dramatic changes in political economy since the 60s, dramatic changes in cultural uh, norms since the 60s. We've just been talking about these things. Uh, so it, it makes sense that, that maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, and what I do uh, in this paper is, is examine that hypothesis. And, and I think there is considerable support for the fact uh, that, uh, that both changes in economic policy and changes in cultural values have contributed to this uh, income divergence. Krugman, but but I but I think first Krugman is extremely selective about what the changes are, and uh, he's completely wrongheaded about what the changes mean. He wants to make it into this very sort of simplistic, ideologically satisfying for somebody left of center morality tale, in which we 
lived in a golden age of the 50s, and then these evil right-wingers came along and uh, tricked everybody uh, by appealing to their racism uh, into uh, into gutting the old post-war economic system. The social and, contract. And, and, and that's right, ripping up the social contract and allowing uh, uh, you know this new uh, horrible plutocratic yeah. world. Right. Uh, so that's just uh, that's just terrible history, just terrible. Uh, so uh, you know, he wants to point out uh, that that there were policies that uh, that he likes that inhibited income uh, divergence, and no- notably a high minimum wage and and heavy degree of unionization. Uh, and and I, but he doesn't want to point out uh, the. Uh, the whole range of other kind of cartelizing policies that also restricted competition and therefore I think uh, made it uh, made the demand for highly talented people uh, less acute. Uh, if everybody's going to like, not a single airline ever went out of business between 1938 and deregulation in 1978. So, wh- wh- how intensely are people going to compete for the best managers uh, if if the stakes are so low? Uh, so if there's a disconnect between productivity and performance, the competitive pressures for getting the very best people are going to be a lot less intense. So the more competitive we get, the, the, the more important it is to have the very best people around. So I think competition for top talent has increased dramatically because of a general increase in competitive pressures. Meanwhile, uh, uh, which leads to higher rewards for course, the most for everybody, people. right? Um, meanwhile, uh, we've seen. Uh, uh, have more competition among people at the bottom, uh, and one large reason is uh, is immigration. And so Krugman doesn't want to note that one of the reasons that uh, that white males had it so good, you know, low skilled white males had it so good in the fifties and sixties, is because they didn't have to compete against white women, uh, and they didn't have to compete against blacks, uh, and uh, and in particular they didn't have to compete against immigrants. That we had a pretty much complete shutdown of immigration from. Uh, the mid 1920s to the mid 1960s, such that uh, that the percentage of foreign-born Americans slipped from about 13 percent in 1920 to about 5 percent in 1970. Then, uh, with the changes in immigration law in 1965, we've seen a new wave of mass immigration, and foreign-born uh, population has gone up to 12 percent of the population again. So, uh, that's a huge wave of low-skilled workers, mostly from Mexico and Central America, uh, who. Uh, uh, who contribute significantly to the inequality picture. Statistically, in human terms, uh, global inequality is decreasing. These yeah. people are making a lot more money than they were where they lived, uh, yeah. so they're a lot better off. They're much closer to the people at the top of the American social scale than, than they were before. Uh, virtually everybody in America is better off, too. There may be there are some low-skilled workers that, that uh, might have had their incomes depressed relative to what would have been the case with, with stricter immigration. Uh, but the main effect is this statistical artifact. Uh, if you, there's a guy uh, uh, who has, and it's cited in the paper, uh, who has looked at uh, recalculating the inequality trends. If you factored in uh, these people, the immigrants, at the front, at the beginning of the process, back in the 1970s, at their native country wages, yeah. uh, and then you see that inequality has actually fallen. But the stats look worse. Well, um, an example of that is that if high school. If you haven't finished high school in America, you, you're doing a lot worse. Yeah. But, of course, those snapshots from census data are not the, looking at the same people over time. Of course, it doesn't that's right. literally mean that a person without a high school diploma is no. doing worse. It means that 
the group of people who don't have high school diplomas in 2006, say, aren't doing as well as the people in 1970 who didn't have high school diplomas. That's right. If you look, you know. But the people in 2006 who don't have high school diplomas, a lot of them are coming from foreign countries where their level of education is not very high and the quality is not very high. And so, not surprisingly, they drag down the average. Yes. So, uh, so on the uh, what I see is that uh, what we had the old system of political economy uh, was one in which uh, competition was suppressed in a wide variety of ways, uh, and the uh, the, the uh, dismantling of that anti-competitive policy apparatus uh, has made our economy much more productive, made us much richer, and indeed has uh, increased demand uh, for people at the very top. Uh, so this. This is a uh, a side effect of great economic progress. Um, on as far as uh, uh, unionization falling, that likewise is uh, a uh, a casualty of economic progress. Uh, that it isn't because labor law changed in any significant way. The the firing of the Patco workers uh, was you know a, a trivial incident. Uh, what mattered was that unions, which are labor market cartels. Uh, could only thrive in a in a relatively uncompetitive environment where the, their the inflated costs that they produced, uh, both labor costs directly and then inflating costs of production through restrictive work rules, those costs could be passed along to consumers who couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but with the uh, emergence of global competition and then with the uh, the increasing migration of American manufacturing out of the traditionally unionized Northeast and Midwest into the South and Southwest. Uh, You've seen a lot more competition, and unions simply couldn't. Uh, the unionized workforces just started uh, losing workers. That the, the fundamental reason for deunionization is because unionized workplaces uh, have shrunk in employment at about two percent a year, whereas ununionized workplaces have grown in employment at about two percent a year. So the only way to make up for that would be through phenomenal organization of new industries, organization of. Uh, uh, of unions in new industries peaked in the 1950s and has been going down ever since. So unions have just been contracting because the economy is free enough for us to work around these cartels, and that's what's been happening. So I see the inequality on the on the economic policy side as as a side effect of of great progress in better policies, policies that that weren't foisted on us by uh, by uh, conservatives, but that were actually uh, recognized as. Uh, as good ideas across the political spectrum, um, you know, uh, the uh, uh, <clears throat> all of the economic deregulation. Much of it started under Jimmy Carter. Uh, Ted Kennedy uh, was the author of airline and trucking deregulation, and cheering him on uh, as an activist was Ralph Nader. Um, the last three major uh, rounds of global trade talks uh, were concluded by Democratic presidents, the Kennedy round by LBJ, uh, the Tokyo round by Jimmy Carter, uh, the Uruguay round by Bill Clinton. Uh, so, uh, And, of course, we associate uh, tax cutting with, with Republicans, and famously, Reagan did lower the top uh, individual rate from 70 to 50, but then it went all the way down to 28, thanks to a bill sponsored by two Democrats. Bill Bradley in the Senate and Dick Gephardt in the House. So uh, I, I see this eco- this economic deregulation as a, as a fundamentally bipartisan movement. Um, uh, so I think Krugman gets his history all wrong. On the cultural side, the only cultural norm he wants to talk about is the fact that people used to feel sheepish about paying their top executives a lot of money. 
and and yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, but uh, but that's that's part of a a much broader and much more fundamental shift towards this kind of cultural individualism I was talking about. Just as people are much more uh, into uh, self-expression in the cultural realm, they're into self-expression in the economic realm too, and they they want to be all they can be. They want to test the market and get their highest rewards. And and we've seen, I think, less sense of being an organization man and loyal to the company, and, and that has, I think, contributed at least to some extent to uh, to greater rewards for people at the top, because people at the top are more interested in, in maximizing uh, uh, the rewards they get in the marketplace. And as I think you point out, it's generally uh, often forgotten, uh, it isn't just CEOs who make a big multiple of the average worker. It's Athletes and entertainers, places where it's clear there isn't some kind of boardroom conspiracy to reward their friends. It's a part of economic life that's changed. Part of that, of course, is due to some policy changes, free agency being the most obvious example in the case of uh, athletes. But much of it is due to technology, the opportunity for athletes and entertainers to sell their product across a much larger market has led to high rewards at the very top. Yes, absolutely. So that's right. The free agency, you, you saw it you know, first in, in movies with the breakdown of the old studio system, uh, and, then you, and then you saw it in athletics, and then, and then you saw it in, in not just for CEOs, but for all highly talented, uh, uh, high-skilled workers that as uh, uh, the sort of equivalent of free agency with this new world of global competition and, and, uh, and much more intensive domestic competition as well with the deregulated environment, uh, you, uh, you had people shifting around from one company to the other or one industry to another, uh, much more so than in the past, uh, because the, the need to have the very best people, uh, was, was more acute and you had more of a bidding war for these folks. Yeah. And, and so that has allowed the, uh, by putting, uh, the most able people in the most important places, uh, that that bidding war has been phenomenally beneficial to all of us because it has made the overall economy more productive than it otherwise would have been. And but we're almost out of time, but before we leave this topic, I do want to mention that for the least skilled, uh, again, I think much of the alleged problems in material well-being that they've experienced is something of a statistical artifact, but part of it is real. And part of it is the fact that our education system stinks, especially for poor people and people in bad urban neighborhoods. And uh, if we want to do something about this, rather than go back to the cultural norms of the 50s, we ought to liberate our school system. I I agree with that. So in closing, um, we haven't talked at all about the current situation that we're in. So I want you to um, give me your thoughts very briefly, which is on the question of a lot of people are claiming that because of the crisis, uh, free markets are dead, Adam Smith is dead, Milton Friedman is dead. Um, what are your thoughts on the future of a more free market economic policy space and uh, where we might be heading? I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, these, are, these are not times where it's easy to be hopeful if you believe in uh, small government and, uh, and free markets. But, but as I said, I, I, I uh, believe that, that – uh, that we've gotten into an ideological rut of uh, and a reactionary rut where both sides uh, are are just not tuned into the combination of, of economic and cultural dynamism that we have in this age of abundance. Uh, and I think that in recent years we saw the right 
run out of gas that that finally this 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 movement uh kind of fell apart in its in its reactionary being out of touch with the center of american public opinion that well, got that, power also which that, is that, not so good that's, for it. that's right uh, but incre- what started out as a kind of a broad based appeal to middle america uh, and that's how the right wing really start, got going in the late 60s uh, the silent majority became as they keep kept clinging to this sort of traditional way of looking at things, became more and more sectarian, more and more narrow, uh, and more and more nasty about everybody else. Uh, and so finally, I think they lost touch with the center, and, and the center went to the Democratic Party because they, they didn't like being you know, the idea that everybody who lived in, uh, you know, uh, not in red states or, or uh, was, you know, was not a real American. So I, I think that, I, I feel that that ideology of hostility to cultural dynamism really lost touch with the center of American public opinion and, and paid it a heavy price. I think the, the less hostility to economic dynamism is getting a, a, a big workout right now, and I, I think it's not going to work out well. And I, I'm hopeful that, that this big government instinct, anti-market instinct, anti-entrepreneur instinct, and anti-success instinct is going to, uh, is going to discredit itself as well uh, because uh, it's going to lead to bad policies, and the bad policies are going to lead to bad results. But we're going to have to go through uh, a fairly nasty uh, learning process uh, before, before we get to that point. My guest today has been Brink Lindsay of the Cato Institute, author of The Age of Abundance. Brink, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Great pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.